the IE Business Podcast in association with PwC. Transformation always disrupts, but it doesn't always need to be disruptive. Hello there, and welcome to the IE Business Podcast in association with PwC. Joining me today is Dr. Dale Wheelahan, who is hoping to make a four-day week a reality as the CEO of Four Day Week Global. Dale, you're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Coach. So tell me, what is Four Day Week Global and how does it work? So Four Day Week Global is a not-for-profit organization that was founded in 2019 by entrepreneurs Angie Barnes and Charlotte Lockhart when they trialed a reduced working hour policy on their own company, Perpetual Guardian, based out of Auckland in New Zealand. And at that time, they were designing a trial basically to see how could they reduce workers' hours, but also maintain output or productivity of the workforce. And so they designed this 180-100 principle, which was 100% pay for 80% time for 100% output. And from that, there was an academic study conducted with Auckland's Institute of Technology, which showed some very promising results that when you leverage a principle, what we call in psychology of Parkinson's law, i.e. you reduce the amount of time available for people to do something, that they reorganize their work in order to achieve it in that new time frame. Um, from that, then, I suppose they, they had stumbled upon what might be now considered a new topic in the future of work. And so the organization has been conducting further larger scale pilot studies across the globe, evaluating reduced working hours and its impact on people and their performance, uh, organizational productivity, organizational revenue, and then more broadly, the impacts on health and well-being of society, equality outcomes and sustainability outcomes. We are now conducting pilots in six continents and are looking at the variances in different outcomes across different cultures and different sectors. And we have been named this year by Time Magazine as one of their most influential companies of 2023. So really, it has been a very exciting year for the organization. Wow. Um, I think it's so funny, uh, the, the Parkinson's law that you were talking about there, it seems like the Cramer's law just get everything done as quickly as possible out of the way. Um, but that does definitely make sense. And, you know, if I'm not wrong, this came out of a steering group in Ireland. Um, so and you're talking about how this this initiative is being adopted all over the globe. Have Ireland, were Ireland ever kind of ahead in that space? And if so, have we lost a bit of that momentum or in general, are we just catching up? So really interestingly, Ireland was the first country to actually do a pilot evaluation. And that was on, I think it was about 16 companies in Ireland who who trialed this in conjunction with Four Day Week Global and the Four Day Week Irish campaign, which is being led out by Forza. And we published the findings of those six month pilots around this time last year, actually. So it was the first time that we had data at a, a national level to suggest that this works. Since then, we have seen results come out from the UK, which was a much larger study of 60 companies came out in February, and then the US and Australasia as well. And next week, we're releasing our South African findings as well. So I think the conversation has been led by the likes of Ireland and the conversation around working time and flexibility is certainly ever present in, in you know the conversations uh, by the ministry uh, at the moment. And when we met with uh, with Minister Coveney earlier on in July, 
he was certainly interested in exploring this concept further and so commissioned a report uh, on a four-day week in the Irish context, which is due to be published, I think, April or May next year. Okay. Um, I suppose what I would be really interested in is there, was, there is quite a bit of backlash from some sectors. Um, are you seeing that yourself? Are you seeing that some industries are just not pushing back totally against a four-day week? And why do you think that is? I think that there is often a lot of misconceptions around what a four day week entails. And I think when we rephrase it in the context of that 180, 100 principle, we can actually guarantee those assurances to both, not just the employee that they are getting more time off, but also to the employer that productivity is going to be maintained throughout the transition. And where we see this most easily done is in those organizations that are already thinking and innovating in the spaces of flexible and hybrid forms of working. They're looking at this as a unique value proposition as well, maybe in the, in the war for talent, particularly in those smaller industries that maybe can't compete on salary or other benefits. Um, but we are also seeing it being more easily implemented in professional services industries where people might be able to do when people think of a four-day week the closing of the office on friday and that's where the majority i suppose of four-day week interventions lie is in those more simple office-based project work um monday to friday close on the friday but we have worked with 16 different sectors now and trying to understand how can you effectively reduce working time but also maintain the business outcomes that's relevant to your sector. And so we take a few different examples there. You take healthcare, for example, my own background is having worked within healthcare and research healthcare workers. A four day week looks very differently in those sectors because you need, you know, staffing structures, three, six, five a day, three, six, five, you know, 24 seven. But you nearly need to flip it on its head and say, well, the current model of work is not working because we are, you losing huge amounts of, of staff, uh, both through burnout, but also leaving the professions altogether. So it is becoming increasingly necess necessary for us to design new work interventions in those spaces to keep people in it and also to not make them burned out. And so Iceland is probably the most um, comprehensive example of implementing a four day week in healthcare workers. And what they did was they had to hire more staff in order to offset that reduced working hour schedule. But at the macroeconomic level, they were able to reduce their reliance on agency staff, and they were able to reduce absenteeism and, and um, attraction of talent kind of costs. So there was actually a net benefit overall because they probably created a more sustainable human resource structure um, than what they had beforehand in their older structure. So that's one example in, in healthcare. Um, another one is that there is no one size fits all for a four day week. So some organizations are doing five shorter days. Some are doing some of their staff Monday to Thursday. Some are working Tuesday to Friday so that there's always service provision, but there's maybe a shorter um, human resource on those Mondays and Fridays. And then some are looking at, well, our organization goes through peaks and troughs. So actually we might have the staff in full time for when you know, all hands on deck are required, but then we reward them through time and loo. So actually across a monthly period, the reduced working time intervention is still happening. Right. So you're essentially not like a four day work week absolutist that that's the way it should be. It's more that workplaces need to change their behaviours to avoid burnout with the overall aim 
being a four day week. But like, as you say, maybe it's not totally feasible in, in uh, sectors like healthcare. Would that be a right assumption? Exactly. I think you have to look at the the need for the business. So um, and some organizations are a lot are a lot further in their maturity level of being able to innovate and create as well. So organization leaders are only going to take a certain amount of risk um, when trying to engage in interventions like this. I think with the likes of healthcare, this is potentially, you know, a plug to stop the the hemorrhaging of staff from what is currently a, a resource, you know, draining sector. Um, whereas in the likes of the creative industries, it might be a very project-based work where actually having that time off will lead to greater levels of innovation and greater levels of creativity for the week after. And I think we're only really at the the precipice of change in this conversation. So we need to be able to gather this sort of data in this very early stage of the 48 week conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think as well, just um on that, on the sectors that are pushing back against it a lot. I've heard a lot from hospitality and tourism in particular, saying that they've lost so much business during the pandemic that they can't afford to be open only four days a week. What would you say to that argument? So I think that they have to, I think anyone who approaches these sort of human resources issues with a very fixed mindset that assumes that things are just going to continue to stay the same as they were before the pandemic are only going to shoot themselves in the foot longer term. The reality is that the worker and the mindset of the worker has radically changed in the last five to six years and it is not going to return to pre-pandemic assumptions about the world of work. Another trend that's emerging is Gen Z are really bringing about forcible change uh, in leadership within organizations because in many instances the ideology that you work hard and you'll be rewarded is no longer guaranteed um, to the way it might have been for previous generations so people are looking for different benefits in the world of work and that is putting pressure on organizational leaders to figure out what are the retention strategies that we need to employ i think when you look at sectors like hospitality you know, it is a challenging sector, but actually similar to healthcare, um, what is it that you can actually is costing you money with your current approach to, you know, to staffing structures? And is that working as optimally as you as you think it is? And I often find that you if you take the the bird's eye view and the macroeconomic costings of some of these sort of things, you might get more productive staff, you might get happier and healthier staff who provide better customer service, uh, which could lead to better returns of investment for you longer term. The other thing is that when you are engaging in a four day week trial, it is not just as simple as clicking your fingers and changing your staffing structure. It is about radical change in culture, leadership, process, uh, technology, all of those sort of things and leveraging them to build a high performance culture instead of using time as this arbitrary metric of productivity, which is what we currently do. So I suppose the first question I would ask those organizational leaders who are struggling to say, well, we can't reduce working time because it would reduce productivity of our workforce. What is productivity of your workforce? What does that mean? And I think many leaders struggle to answer that very basic question. And so in a four day week trial, we use that as the nodal point in order to build a trial to build high performance culture and thus maintain that level of productivity. Mm-hmm. 
Um, as you talked about Gen Z there, I had to think about that video. I don't know if you saw it of the girl in tears talking about her nine to five, five day a week, uh, her first big job out of college. And she got slated for it by some on social media and praised for it by others, saying that, yes, the this the system that we work in is broken and that crying about it and, and talking about how terrible it is and that we don't have any time or like a lack of free time is really important. So, yeah, I think, do you think TikTok and social media in particular and the use of that has kind of pushed that workplace change? For sure. I mean, Gen Z are the first generation who have grown up in an interconnected world. So they have seen alternative practices outside of just what's around them. Whereas, you know, myself growing up as a millennial, you, you grew up in a culture that said um, this is how things are done. And so therefore all you had was that as a reference point to assume that this is how things are done. Whereas if you are you know, an Irish worker looking at how things happen in New Zealand versus America versus, you know, South Africa, you can start realizing, OK, maybe there is a different way to do these sort of things. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that that force that Gen Z are bringing is not something to be taken lightly. And we can, we can, uh, you know, as organizational leaders of older generations say that Gen Z are lazy, which is the prevailing narrative that is emerging now. Or we can say this or this generation is trying to create a different type of world of work. And so we need to try and start understanding them because at the end of the day, a lot of organizations rely on the the work of young workers in order to produce you know the, the the revenue for their organizations and so learning how to attract and understand and retain those staff is going to be pivotal for organizational longevity mm -hmm. are you a gen z i'm on the precipice so i'm i'm it all depends on when you decide gen z starts and millennial ends i'm 1996 but the beginning of 1996 so I did grow up by and large without technology. I grew up with Bebo, you know, but I didn't grow up with Instagram. And I think Instagram and TikTok have really changed the game around what people can do in their 20s versus what people, versus what work tells you you need to do in your 20s. Yeah, I suppose as well, like, I mean, the pandemic, an awful lot of bad came out of the pandemic um, for workers. But I suppose with workplace changes, the genie is out of the bottle now as well. You know, there's no excuses anymore. You know, workplaces have shown that they can be flexible. Um, do you think they're trying to roll back on that now being like, no, 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 we didn't like this when it happened. And, you know, it, it's not a good thing. I think organizational leaders really struggle with trusting their staff which is I always find is a bit of a catch-22 because often staff have to go through very rigorous recruitment processes in order to show their level of capability in the first place so I think the question that needs to really be posed to leaders when they feel that they don't trust their staff is why are you hiring all this top talent which you know master degrees and you know very competent bachelor degrees or, or or lots of experience and then you're infantilizing them when they actually get into the workforce we know in the field of psychology that when a person feels like they are being micromanaged um that that will undermine their inherent level of motivation and we need to be creating a world of work where there is trust between the employer and the employee uh, and that the employer 
learns how to work best to their own needs. And I think when you provide that flexibility, and we saw it during the pandemic, people are, you know, capable of self-determination and managing their own work schedules and, and producing outputs irrespective of whether their managers are looking at them or not. And so I think the world of work needs to continue in that path. I think if we go back down a much more micromanaged version of you must be on site, you must be doing this, you must be doing this, that is going to create a breakdown of the psychological contract between the worker and the employer, which is not going to be good for anyone longer term. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think the burning question is as well as do you work a four day week? I do, but it's not without the the difficulty in doing so. And I think what's important to to realize in the narrative of four day week is that no one said this was easy. Um, but it's a worthwhile investment. And you know, I used to work in professional services and organizations are spending huge amounts of money on finance transformation, on um technological transformation, but they're not investing a huge amount in human resource transformation. And we're seeing organization leaders really struggle with improving the well-being of their workforce and they're throwing money at interventions that are supposed to work but actually aren't moving the dial whatsoever so for me i think it's about making sure that you are using an intervention that is proving to have an evidence base to to change issues that we know cause burnout and i like to use the analogy of what us behavior scientists always call the dichotomy of behavior change where does ultimate behavior change lie is it with the organization or with the individual and it's a classic academic answer saying it's both so i like to think that you you can lead a horse to water i.e you can provide the policy around a four-day week you can poke the horse to drink the water i.e you create social norms and culture you know cultural influence that persuades people to clock off uh, on a thursday say and not log in on a friday but ultimately the horse has to drink the water themselves so you as an individual need to learn how to actually get the best benefit out of the policies and cultures that's being encouraged of you. And for me in my transition to a four day week, that's really hard because I am inherently a perfectionist who has had a, you know, a very strong link of professional identity with my personal identity. So I've had to actually go through a very personal journey of disentangling both of those things uh, over the last year. But I wouldn't have been able to do that if I hadn't had the time in order to explore that sense of personal identity in the first place. Um, And it is a work in progress. But for me now, I have this feeling I don't trust myself. So I delete emails. I delete all my social medias on Thursday evenings. And doing so, I'm I'm reducing my ability to actually uh, go and, and be in any way connected to the world of work. And I know when I do that. I do detach from work and I do get recovery and I do feel good at the weekend and I come back better and refreshed on a Monday. But that is a psychological skill, uh, detachment from work that actually, particularly Ireland in between, you know, the US and the UK has only um, gotten worse at being able to do over the last, you know, 20 to 30 years and particularly in a digital world. I would completely agree. I mean, I find it hard not to just scroll through emails when I'm 
on annual leave you know I think it's such a bad habit that we have in the Irish workforce um, but you talked about your own journey before four day week global um, which is quite diverse I mean you started off with a degree in physiotherapy um, ended up in a doctorate in behavioral science you've also worked for big corporations like Deloitte um, so what kind of what was what were the main key points of that very varied career that led you to look at workplace behavior in particular? Yeah, so I think for me, you know, I was I was a child of the Celtic Tiger, you know, where we had huge amounts of money and I think there was huge reward placed on, you know, happiness was your ability to earn as much money as possible. That was very much the prevailing narrative in the Celtic Tiger. But then I entered into secondary level education during the biggest economic recession that this country, you know, has ever faced. And I think that that austerity and that narrative around security really defined my career choices then going into third level because it was very much you must have a stable career um, because nothing is guaranteed um, outside of that. So I was naturally good at the sciences and I knew I wanted to work on the health and well-being of people. So physiotherapy became a natural choice um, of, of what I wanted to study. When I got into the career then, and particularly when I started my clinical placements, I very quickly realized this is not for me. Um, so I had a thousand hours uh, of clinical placement ahead of me um, of realizing it wasn't for me. So I started at that point trying to figure out, well, what is my exit strategy here? Or how can I leverage this career, this degree in a way that I can create something that is of interest to me? And I always liked being able to connect with people, but more importantly, understanding human behavior, um, which is ultimately what physios try to do only in the context of trying to improve people's, you know, ill health. And so behavior change became the the kind of the, the string throughout all of my careers at that very individual level as a physio. As I went into my doctorate, then I explored the impact of sleep deprivation and fatigue on performance in surgeons, which really opened my eyes to looking at all of the disciplines of behavioral science, which included a lot of psychology and behavioral economics and anthropology. And then I came down from my ivory tower of academia and climbed up the ivory tower of consulting and um, said, well, it's time to bridge the gap now between theory and practice. And so I, I was involved in the human capital, um, the part of, of Deloitte. Uh, in establishing and, you know, um, their behavior science and culture kind of offering. So I got at that time the ability to understand how behavior change can is not just necessarily for health and well-being of people, but we can leverage it to try and bring about any sort of organizational behavior change. But I always wanted to get back to that place of, of using my knowledge in behavioral science to make a positive impact on people's well-being. And I'd been reading a lot of research that was coming out from Oxford at the time um, from the Wellbeing Research Centre there, which was trying to make a science of the field of well-being, which, as we know, is a very, it, it's hijacked by a lot of pseudoscience at the moment. Mm -hmm. So they had found that all of these individualized interventions like yoga at lunch, free fresh, and all of these sort of things were actually making the well-being of our workforce worse. And it's because they were essentially trying to create a narrative that you should feel okay because we are providing you with this 
while neglecting the glaringly obvious problematic organizational issues that were actually contributing to burnout in the first place, like toxic leadership, overworking, um, you know, poor uh, culture. And a four-day week as a conversation, as you mentioned earlier on, the campaign was emerging in Ireland on, at that time. And Oxford was saying, you need organizational level intervention to bring about change. And I knew a four-day week was at organizational level change. Not just was it reducing working hours, but it was half, it was making organizations have to address all of those toxic issues that were, you know, um, handicapping their organization's ability to perform to their best ability. And so it was at that point that I started to get involved in that conversation and that campaign, uh, and then ultimately joined the global organization, Four Day Week Global, um, earlier on this year. Wow. So you're telling me that the, the yoga and the pizza parties, and they don't work? Shock. <laughs> I know. And do you know what's most depressing is that organizations are spending thousands of euro on, on these interventions for their workforce and they're not getting any return for investment. So even from a very, you know, pragmatic CEO or CFO's point of view on investing in well-being, they're not getting any return of investment. Yes, it's more difficult to do the, the complex stuff like addressing culture and leadership, but they are the things that are going to bring about the change in the first place. Um, so yeah, I, I, I coined the term window shopping wellness and I, I would love, you know, 2024 to be the year where the narrative emerges that this sort of stuff just doesn't work and we need to, to stop doing it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I we touched on burnout throughout this conversation, but just more seriously, you know, Ireland has quite a, um, a chronic mental health problem. If do you think that boost and maybe it's a bit of an obvious question, but do you think that maybe a four day work week would take pressure off mental health services? Or do you think it's it's its own entirely different situation? Yeah, and the field of mental health and well-being is something that's quite personally, you know, um, important to me. I have a mental health condition myself. I got one from my PhD. Uh, one in three of us end up with that additional gift. And wow. I think that it is important to, to realize we have normalized um, mental ill health in society. You, you hear constantly, there's certain, what I always find really interesting is how we normalize certain words and then we re-stigmatize some words. So someone says they're depressed or, and it's a little bit, okay, don't really want to go into that space, but someone says they're burned out and it's like, oh yeah, me too. Like, and you know, when you look at the psychological theory behind some of these things, there is underlying, you know, similarities between these sort of issues. Um, I definitely think that work the world of work is not working for us at the moment and the issues of fatigue and exhaustion um have now put us in this perpetual cycle of where we are not able to actually look after ourselves a prop a properly covid afforded us for the first time the ability to take a step back and look at our health and well-being and i think when we look at you know anytime society places too much worth on making money it never leads to happiness for its people. An organization that leads to rewarding people with more time, time to do the things to look after themselves, time to connect with the people that are important to them, uh, and time to make a positive impact on the world around them. That's what ultimately leads to happiness within our societies. And so in 4 Day Week Global, what we will be doing over the next year 
is producing research on what a four-day world would look like. And so if you looked at it collectively, creating a million new years of free time, even 500,000 people, you know, engaging in a six-month trial, what would that collectively mean for reducing cumulative stress effects on people across a lifetime? Could that then actually lead to a reduction in prevalence of chronic disease in people uh, at an early onset level? Could it lead to a more equal society? Because we know that from a four-day week research, it disproportionately benefits women in work because women tend to be more time poor anyway. Um, whereas now the, the lines of productivity are defined by outcomes and not by how much time you can dedicate to a task. We also know outside of the world of work, the burden of care still lies on women. Uh, but what 40 week research has shown is that parenting time by men have doubled throughout the trials. And lastly, we are des in desperate need of interventions in the world of work that are going to create a more sustainable world for us all. And you can't build sustainable behaviors in people unless you build sustainable well-being within people in order to create those sort of behaviors. And what we have found in 40 week trials is that commuting time by people reduced by 36 minutes per person per week. When you extrapolate that to a national level, that's a significant reduction in CO2 levels uh, within, a, within a society. We've also seen um, nearly half of participants saying that they're engaging in more pro-social behaviors in their time off. So they're using more public forms of transport, they're volunteering, they're engaging in more recycling behaviors. And I think that comes down to what a lot of science would say is that when people are time affluent, they tend to do things that are good for other people. When people are time poor, they tend to do things that are good for themselves only. Right. Um, and I suppose my final, final question is, that's a lot of goals for a four day week global to try and achieve over the next year. What do you need to be able to achieve all of that, especially maybe from government or um, from unions and talking to their sectors? What are the main tools? It's a really great conversation because it's it's you know it's been a fascinating year for me being at the the forefront of this conversation and also having that hawk's eye view of how each country is approaching this conversation of working hour reduction. What's really interesting is that when I was having this conversation, you know, two or three years ago, this was you know not something that was ever going to be considered feasible in the world of work. And I think the narrative has very much changed now to say well, actually, this could be part of the world of work. And that's only despite the fact we've only published findings less than 12 months ago. So the narrative has really is really growing at a very quick rate. I would say in the next 10 years, we can expect a four day week as, as part of the normal um, world of work, similar to how we will see flexible uh, and hybrid worlds of work. That's just the rate of conversation that this is now happening. How you bring about change is in a few ways you do to the public and the private sector so the private sector are going to be the first to jump to this intervention because they want to remain competitive in the marketplace and so this has been by and large a small and medium enterprise-led intervention through the small pilot studies to date but we have now seen some big um heavy hitters doing this internally themselves uh, with the view to launching this as a unique value proposition for their employers in the future uh, the most the most recent one which we've been working with is Medibank, which is the equivalent of VHI in Australia. 
And so they that will lead to a ripple effect for the likes of Bupa and for you know other uh, insurance companies to start bringing in these sort of interventions as well. So we will see it from that uh, angle in the private sector. From the the trade union perspective, then we have seen union bodies realizing that in their collective bargaining negotiations, working time reduction might be one of these future things that they need to consider. And so IG Metal, which is one of the largest unions in Germany, has now incorporated this into their future negotiations. The, the United um, Workers in America, who Henry Ford, who brought in the five-day week, they were advocating as part of their lobbying efforts um, with their current uh, union membership as well. And so I think we will see more coming from the union bodies over the next few years in that space as well. Similarly, Forsa then, which is obviously our uh, one of our largest public sector bodies, they're sponsoring the Irish uh, intervention as such. And then from the public sector perspective, we have had conversations with over 16 ministries across the globe in the last 11 months. And that has been from a myriad of different perspectives, some coming from we want to improve productivity of our workforce. Others coming from we want to be able to attract, you know, more um, highly competent people into, you know, our society. Others coming from we want to improve our gender equality metrics. Others wanting to improve their sustainability targets. When you were meeting with the minister, you know, uh, he, amongst other uh, TDs that we have met on the topic, said that this is where we are going as a society. You know, Irish has been Irish uh, entrepreneurism and Irish technology has been at the forefront, you know, of these conversations. And so what is the next key differentiator to make sure that uh, Ireland remains at the forefront of those conversations is going to be important. Um, Where we also really need to see radical change in the next few years is public sector trials, because the divide between the public and sector, public and private sector is only ever growing at the moment. That is not good for society if all of our talent is leaving the public sector and going to work for the private sector. Now, we rely on public services in order to function as a society. And so I would encourage, you know, politicians in order to try and create innovation within the public sector through interventions like this. And where we have seen public sector trials have been in the largest forthcoming one is the Scottish public sector government trial commencing in 2024. And then we've had smaller trials amongst county councils um, and local districts, not just in, in the UK, but in the US and Australia uh, as well. Finally, the European Union will also have a, a very important role to play in this. And they've been watching closely the relationship between working time and productivity uh, of the European Union uh, members over the last few years and have just committed to three years of funding exploring the topic of reduced working time specifically. So there may be forthcoming, you know, recommendations from the Parliament or the Commission in the next few years around working time as well. Wow. So the next year pretty much is going to be the the real momentum behind the movement, it seems, like all these moving parts coming together, um, which sounds really, really exciting. Um, yeah. Yeah. I like to think of 2024 as going to be the year of the, of the four. Um, this year was really only the front runners, you know, and the narrative now is becoming pretty well established that this is good for people. When it's good for people and people feel productive and happy and healthy, they tend to produce better outcomes in work, which can lead to better outcomes in society. Now it's just about scaling up that data set and making the case irrefutable to organizations. But the fact that all of the stakeholders involved in the world of work 
are looking at this as something and no longer saying this is not feasible would certainly indicate to us that this is a very promising intervention uh, in the forthcoming years. Well, I think that's as good a note to leave this conversation on as any. Dr. Dale Wheelahan, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thanks so much, Colette. Thanks for having me. Join me for another episode of the IE Business Podcast next week. The IE Business Podcast, in association with PwC. Transformation always disrupts, but it doesn't always need to be disruptive.